Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, June 29th, a day before the last primaries of the month, and day six of awaiting some big results from last week's primaries in New York and Kentucky. Joining us today to discuss a few of those races and more is Quentin James, the founder and president of the Collective PAC, which works to increase Black political power. After that, we'll break down a new campaign ad on the airwaves. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Jero's Gem, my number of the week, is 13. That's the number of former governors currently serving in the Senate. Four of them are seeking re-election in November, Idaho Republican Jim Risch, New Hampshire Democrat Gene Shaheen, South Dakota Republican Mike Rounds, and Virginia Democrat Mark Warner. Tennessee Republican Lamar Alexander is not seeking re-election. One sitting governor and one former governor are seeking to join the Senate next year. Montana Democratic Governor Steve Bullock is opposing Republican Senator Steve Daines, and former Colorado Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper is the leading candidate in Tuesday's primary to oppose Republican Senator Cory Gardner. Hickenlooper's two victories as governor in 2010 and 2014 are a big reason why he's the preferred candidate of Senate Democratic leaders, though he would first have to defeat former State House Speaker Andrew Romanoff in the Democratic primary. I'll post the entire list of senators who are ex-governors on my Jero's Gems page at our website, about.bgov.com. So 13, that's your Jero's Gem of the Week. And did you know they have a, a former governor's caucus in the Senate? Uh, I wrote about the, them, uh, I don't know, about five years ago. Pretty interesting group. All right. After the break, we'll interview Quentin James of the Collective Pack about increasing black representation in Congress and other elected offices. Before we do, I want to note that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of our parent company, donated $2 million in March to the PAC's nonprofit arm, Collective Future. He also sought the Democratic presidential nomination and endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. We are editorially separate from those efforts. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Quentin James, founder and president of the Collective Pack, which since 2016 has worked to correct black underrepresentation in elected office at every level of government. Quentin, thanks for coming on Down Ballot Counts. Thank you all so much for having me. Seeing people marching in big cities and small all across the country has made this feel to a lot of people less like a moment and more like a real turning point in our culture. Um, The question, I think, though, is what comes of it? So politically, what's your organization doing to harness this energy and awareness and self-reflection to increase black political power? That's a great question. Um, What we're seeing around the country and and also around the world, which has been surprising, um, is the, the kind of culmination of the new civil rights movement, which we've kind of been in, I think, since I would say the Trayvon Martin incident, um, in the kind of rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of hashtag at that time. Um, one way we've been looking at this is, you know, we want to make sure folks understand that if we want to change the laws, we have to change the lawmakers. 
Uh, and so for us, that's been just a critical component of our work. Um, one way we've been directly engaging the protest movement is we've been using the technology, of, you know, we call geofencing, um, where you can take mobile IDs from certain geographic areas. We've been doing that for all the protests and serving, you know, the protesters and activists uh, voter registration advertisements. We want to make sure that folks are engaged in the political process that starts with being a registered voter. Uh, but then we're also looking at ways to encourage candidates to run for office. Um, in a few weeks, we'll be uh, launching our Black Campaign School, which has been a kind of phenomenal program we've been running for the past few years, which, um, again, gives candidates the tools, the training uh, to be able to step up and run for office. We know that if it's whether, you know, it's a PTA president or the president of a, you know, local fraternity sorority, like those are the kind of leaders who we want to like make sure they understand that your leadership can appear in public service as well. Right. Not just within these kind of, uh, you know, black affinity groups and kind of black justice groups like, no, we actually need you making policy. We need you managing tax dollars to create the change that, you know, we all want to see. And, and you're, you were just sort of referencing the grassroots. And I think um, we could see this all the way to the top. I mean, the timing of the movement is remarkable. I, we'll get to congressional primaries in a minute, but even higher up on the ballot, Joe Biden happens to be vetting running mates right now. Um, and the list includes several women of color. Um, I, I don't know if you have any insight, of course, but do you think he'll ultimately choose one of them? And, and what would that mean for this election and going forward if he did? That's a great question. I, I think... Um the former vice president will end up choosing um, a, a, a woman of color. I think it'll be a black woman. Um, I just think this this moment really requires it. Um, and and there's, in my opinion, nothing but 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 positive benefits. Um, we know one of the most uh, motivating factors for black voters voting in this country is there being black candidates on the ballot, actually. That's just scientifically been proven for decades. Um, we also know there was a 20-year voter turnout drop in the black community in 2016. And so we have to figure out the motivation challenges there. Um, and so I just think it's a, it's a net positive um, for the campaign. But also I think it's like a moral imperative in this moment that we continue to see uh, increased representation from uh, not just, again, black people, but all people of color, right? Like 90% of our elected officials in this country right now are white. 95% of all the prosecutors who are elected are white. Um, 90% of all the sheriffs who are, again, run county policing operations are, are also white. And so we have a tremendous challenge of underrepresentation. And I think that signal from the vice president of choosing a black woman would be great. Um, I've heard, you know, the top four women he's considering uh, black women are uh, Senator Harris from California, Representative Demings from Florida, uh, Mayor Keishlands Bottoms from Georgia, and then Leader Stacey Abrams from Georgia as well. And I think any one of those women would be tremendously qualified uh, and would help Joe Biden win the White House. What were some of your takeaways from last week's primaries in Kentucky? New York and Virginia, some of them we don't know the results of yet, but um, you had you know Charles Booker running Jamal Bowman, Richie Torres, 
uh, Mondaire Jones, uh, Dr. Cameron Webb in Virginia. What what did you take away from last week's elections? Well, it, I mean, for us, it was very much just a, a case study in our theory of change. Uh, we know that black voters um, are more progressive, right? We know that black voters want to see progressive change. Um, you know, recently we celebrated the uh, 50th anniversary of the ratification of the first ever black agenda um, from the historic kind of Gary, Indiana Black Political Convention. And what's fascinating is that 50 years ago, black people were calling for universal health care. Um, they were calling for reduction in police uh, budgets, right? Like, so these things have been in the kind of political consciousness of of black people for a long time. I think what we're now seeing is a, a conversion of um, uh, black candidates running with a progressive message um, and the progressive movement stepping up to, to back them in a national way. Right. So it was amazing that Bernie Sanders is like not the leading face and voice, but like he is the support mechanism for a Jamal Bowman um, or for a, a, a Charles Booker. And so that was fascinating for us just to see that. I, I think it does say that for the progressive movement, like within the larger kind of Democratic Party apparatus, um, if you want to win, you need to start investing now in more diverse and younger candidates. Um, and I think that will be their pathway to victory. Um, I think it's an indictment of the establishment uh, and how they haven't uh, invited and been welcoming to invested in building a younger, more diverse bench. Uh, and so that's the other fascinating thing about this, like all the kind of you know new black members of Congress who are coming in are younger, are more progressive. And so what does that mean for the Congressional Black Caucus? What does that mean for the Democratic Caucus, right? Those are really important questions. Um, you know, you have, again, someone who I, I love, right? Hakeem Jeffries, who's chair of the Democratic Caucus, not backing the progressive black candidate running for Congress in New York. Um, and so I'm sure they're going to all, you know, hug and make up and work together well. But the, this should, you know, give a lot of concern and worry to some of the more establishment democratic forces in, in charge right now. Um, but for us, uh, we've known this. We've been working with these kind of candidates for a long time, right? I mean, we saw what happened with Andrew Gillum, Stacey Abrams in 2018. Now, they didn't win, right? But like Stacey was the most Googled politician in the world in 2018, right? Like there's a huge um, attractiveness and a huge um, desire for more candidates like those those who are running in and in most of those who, who won. Now, again, we'll wait to see what happens in Kentucky. But even still, I mean, being, you know, down by uh, I think it was like 60 points and having a like what, $35 million uh, funding deficit? I mean, to run neck and neck is still uh, uh, a victory you know, in itself. And so, yeah, I think you're going to see more of this. I think you're going to see more of it down ballot. Um, and this might be, the, again, the change that we look at, you know, kind of starting from looking at the change that the Democratic Party, I think these elections will kind of signify that moving forward. And you noted earlier in your most recent ad, just notes as well, that if we want to change the laws, uh, you have to change the lawmakers. What are some of the issues and policies a more diverse Congress or a more diverse state legislature would address that haven't received the attention they deserve? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think um, and it, it seems, you know, uh, maybe extreme to some people now. But the conversation around um, reparations is a real conversation that I think we're going to start to see happen um, at the federal level. Uh, when you get down to state and local, you know, cities, I think again this question around um, now the, the the word is defunding the police, right? And people should understand like 
that's actually the more moderate position. I mean, people are calling for the abolition of police um, around the country as well. And so I think like under uh, people should understand like and, and also like defunding is is very much a bipartisan conversation, right? Like, I mean, the Koch brothers have been pushing um, reform of our our prisons, right? To move money away from you know incarcerating people to other you know pub, kind of public service things. So this isn't like a r- radical conversation around defunding the police either. Um, so uh, the reparations, defunding the police are two. Um, I-, I would say things that have been getting attention, but you know having um, the the public opinion of it isn't as popular, right? So thinking about you know tuition free college. Um, thinking about again universal health care in a real universal way, um, these things are going to pick up steam as we kind of deal with our economy that's been ravaged due to coronavirus. Like this is going to be a a new reality um, for many um, states and cities reckoning with their lost revenue um, when you can't you know afford to pay uh, police officers and firefighters and teachers you know, um, or other public kind of uh, services at the same levels that you used to, where do you make decisions? What do you prioritize? Those will be, I think, the new conversations that we're having, which, again, is the conversation around power. Um, We've seen a lot of, you know, great things, right? Like painting Black Lives Matter on streets or, you know, taking TV shows off that maybe had blackface in them. Like that stuff is really important and symbolic, but like the real thing black people are asking for right now is power. Um, and that's, I think, the conversation that is going to be tough to have in local cities and, and in states moving forward is who controls the budgets, who controls the the policymaking conversations. Um, that's where the rubber meets the road, I think, in these kind of conversations. And how would you assess the prospects for increased black political representation in the November election? We're excited. Um, you know, if if we keep keep this up, um, this will be the 20 uh, in 2021 will be the first time where African-Americans have been equally represented, meaning we've hit that magic 57 member mark, uh, which signifies right like a, a place where African-Americans, you know, their representation in Congress represents their population in the country. Now, a long way to go in the Senate, long way to go. Um, in kind of statewide elected offices around the country with, you know, black governors and lieutenant governors. We've made progress, but not enough. Um, and so this is a, a momentous occasion uh, in November for our community. And I think um, for us, right, if you want to talk about democracy and all the great things that it represents, you have to first start with making sure that every voice is at the table. And due to just systematic you know, my opinion, white supremacy um, in our campaign financing system and how the two party system has really like, you know, denigrated our ability to have voices on all sides. Uh, We're in this kind of place where we just don't have that representation. And it's not just black people. Right. It's all people of color. It's also women. Um, And so we got to we got to change that. And I think this November we will show tremendous progress. Um, but again, um, we, we, we have to keep the ball moving and, and keep moving forward. All right. Last question here. Speaking of November, how are turnout operations for black voters going to change amid the pandemic? Oh, wow. Um, so we're actually excited about turnout as well. Um, what we've been seeing in the primaries is an increased interest from black people to come out and vote. But we've seen bottlenecks in the system that can also hamper that turnout, right? So, like, I was recently in in Louisville, 
Kentucky for the the primary. Um, and although there's a lot, you know, made of the all eyes on Kentucky hashtag, that was actually us um, in, in our program who who kind of helped, you know, get that trending online, had 112 kind of million impressions on that day. But one of the things that like Kentucky should be applauded for is like they passed vote by mail, which was, again, the first time ever led to increased turnout. They had early vote, which was amazing and allowed people to come vote early. But on Election Day, there were challenges, right, with only having one um, precinct per uh, county. And so in Louisville, like we saw up to 30 minute traffic jams of folks just trying to get their vehicles into one location. Um, imagine, uh, right, like hundreds of thousands of people needing to like go to one place to vote. It, it's a challenge. Um, in Lexington, they had over two hour waits um, because they only had three or four check-in tables, right, when you came in. And so, like, I don't think it was an intentional suppression effort, right? But it, it, it had impact of suppression. And so this is a place where I think big data can solve a lot of challenges. Um, one thing that we are working on now is what we're calling our GOTV Holy Grail, which we're going to be launching a national um, uh, commit to vote program targeting African-Americans. So, like, starting in August, you can say, hey, I'm committing to vote. Um, let me know where I need to go, when I need to go, right? We'll have all that in one place. But we'll also ask people to choose. Like, do you want to vote by mail if your state allows it? Do you want to vote early in person? Do you want to vote on Election Day? I mean, when they say that, we will then move them through an engagement funnel, right? All right, you want to uh, vote early in person. Here are the days um, in your state where you can vote early in person. Here's a location. Choose a date and time where you want to go. And guess what? We're going to give you a free code to get a free ride, you know, via Lyft to go uh, to go and vote. And so once we kind of map that out on a macro level, we'll be able to see where are the potential bottlenecks. Right. And what cities, what states do we need to send more lawyers, send more food, uh, you know, recruit more poll workers, uh, recruit more Lyft drivers because they're going to be a, a high demand there. Um, this is where big data can come in and fix our kind of broken voting system. Um, so we're excited about that. We, we know there's been a huge increase in people looking to get right to vote, um, looking for information about candidates. We have to like race against time, and provide that information and make it as easy as possible. Because unfortunately, um, I don't think our president really wants to do that <laughs> um, or many leaders in the Republican Party want to make it easy to vote. And so it, it's really on us to, to make sure that we can fix these challenges and and again, like strengthen our democracy and have a record-breaking turnout in November. You can follow Quentin on Twitter at QJames. Quentin, this was a great discussion. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you all so much. Up next, we're heading to Colorado, where a Spanish language ad is airing in the Senate race. Hay diferencias grandes en la contienda por el Senado. Cory Gardner votó nueve veces para eliminar protecciones para personas con condiciones preexistentes. Y durante la pandemia, Cory Gardner y Donald Trump todavía quieren eliminar Obamacare. Como gobernador, John Hickenlooper expandió Medicaid a más de 400.000 coloradeños y siempre protegerá la cobertura para personas con condiciones preexistentes. John Hickenlooper le va a ganar a Cory Gardner y defenderá a Colorado. That was an ad from Senate Majority PAC, the super PAC aligned with Democrats and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. The Spanish language contrast ad focuses on the differing health care positions of Colorado's Republican Senator Cory Gardner and his likely opponent, former Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. Greg, what stood out to you? Yeah, that it's a Spanish language ad, Kyle, really underscores the importance of the Hispanic vote in Colorado. The state is about 22 percent Hispanic. That's the seventh highest percentage among 
the states and a key voting block in that state. I was also struck by the ad noting that there are key differences in the Senate race while showing images of Cory Gardner and John Hickenlooper as if this was a general election ad for the fall and not a spot as we'd speak in late June, just before a contested Democratic primary on Tuesday. This ad from Senate Majority PAC, which is a prominent Democratic super PAC that backs Hickenlooper, ignores Andrew Romanoff, Hickenlooper's opponent in the primary, while training its fire on Cory Gardner and his votes on health care and the Affordable Care Act. And it also links Gardner to Trump by noting the Trump administration has called for dismantling Obamacare amid the pandemic. Trump lost Colorado by five percentage points in 2016, and Democrats over and over again will try and hang Trump as an albatross around Cory Gardner's neck, Kyle. All right, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But let's first review last week's question and answer. I noted that New York, which held its primary last week, has 27 congressional districts, much fewer than the Empire State had at the height of its political power in the Congress. And I asked for the largest number of congressional districts New York has had in its history. And I gave you the choices of 39, 42, 45, and 48. Let's see if Kyle got this one right. Kyle, what say you? I think it was 45. Ding, ding, ding. You are correct, sir. New York reached a high of 45 seats in the 1930s and 1940s when it was the nation's most populous state and still fast growing. But New York has lost a seat in every reapportionment since 1950 and is projected to lose another one in the 2020 reapportionment. And now for this, this week's question. We talked in this episode about black political power. And in terms of the percentage of the state population, what is the most heavily black state in the United States? Again, what is the most heavily black state in the United States in terms of percentage of the state population? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We will reveal the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. I really needed that win, Greg. All right, that's it for us today. Before we go, what else are you watching this week? Well, Kyle, it's primary day Tuesday in Colorado, Oklahoma, and Utah. The top build race is that Colorado Democratic U.S. Senate primary between John Hickenlooper and Andrew Romanoff. I'm also watching the Republican primary in Oklahoma's 5th District and in Utah's 4th District. Both are Republican-leaning districts where you have first-term Democrats defending their seats. And as we speak on Monday, June the 29th, we're still awaiting the final vote counts in some key primaries from last week, including the Kentucky Democratic Senate primary between Amy McGrath and Charles Booker. Booker had a two-point lead as of Monday morning, but only 80,000 votes had been counted, a small fraction of the likely total. It really will depend on how many absentee ballots that were cast. So we'll be watching that uh, very closely. We're also monitoring the New York 16th District Democratic primary, where educator Jamal Bowman seems to have a huge and probably insurmountable lead over Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel. I'm also watching New York's 12th District Democratic primary, where Oversight and Reform Committee Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney is at risk of losing her seat to Siraj Patel. Again, quite a lot of ballots cast by mail left to be counted in that contest from last week. All right. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstead and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website. 
about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Taxes and accounting are complicated. But finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu. And I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you. From what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.